is healthcare a human right? Does everyone, as the late Paul Farmer put it, deserve a fair shake? That's today's big question. It shouldn't be a question, but my guest today is Dr. Sheila Davis, and she is the CEO of Partners in Health. Sheila entered the global health arena in 1999, responding to the global HIV and AIDS pandemic. A few years later, she co-founded a small NGO that worked in both South Africa and Boston on a wide array of health projects, including the operation of a rural village nurse clinic. She joined PIH in 2010 as their main operation in Haiti was just torn apart by the earthquake there and worked her way up over the years, uh, becoming the chief of Ebola response during the 2014-2016 West Africa epidemic, and then as the chief of clinical operations and the chief nursing officer, a big, big job there, where Sheila oversaw nursing efforts, uh, as well as the supply chain, medical informatics, laboratory infrastructure, and quality improvement activities. Dr. Davis is, I'm so lucky to have her here. She is a frequent national speaker on global health and clinical topics, including HIV and AIDS, uh, the Ebola epidemic, leadership in public health, and the role of nursing in human rights. And folks, if it is not clear enough for the past few years, not just in the U.S., much less everywhere around the world, yes, it is a human right. And yes, everyone deserves a fair shake. We need nurses. We need empathy and care more than ever. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. In these weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human who is working on the front lines of the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Along the way, you and I are going to discover tips, strategies, stories you can use to get involved, to become more effective in this world around us. Now look, we have made so much progress and we also have so far to go. That's our job. That's our opportunity. We need a half a million more nurses here in the U.S. alone, and millions of them, and community health workers the world over. And that's where Partners in Health and the tens of thousands of community health workers and teachers and, and, and hospitals and training centers they've built around the world in 11 countries, that's where they really come in. And I'm so excited to share their story and their model with you today. Dr. Sheila Davis, thank you for joining the show. It worked. We did it. We did it. A few attempts, but we made it. I feel like perseverance is really the the name of the game here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm hoping we get to the end of this. That's my goal for literally this entire week is that we get this thing done. Uh, I'm so thankful and appreciative and cognizant of how important your time is. So before we do get going, though, as I hinted to you a few moments ago, I like to start with one question, and I've asked it 100 and, I don't know, 50-something times. So it sounds ridiculous, but we do get some, some some great answers out of it. So, Sheila, if you don't mind, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage you to be bold and honest. I think I'm vital to the survival of the species because I firmly believe we can be a better species than we are now. And that see that we're all critical to our, our survival is so interconnected and what I'm doing is making sure that people around the world also have the same ability to survive in a, in a way that allows them to live a full life. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. It doesn't seem too far-fetched uh, or full of bravado. It seems uh, simple, but pretty, pretty important. I think I mentioned to you, I would like to start with talking about Paul a little bit for folks who aren't yes, familiar yes. sort of with him and how it started. But one of my biggest takeaways has always been that's his ethos, which is, you know, all lives really should be valued equally. Um, you yes. know, everyone deserves care, some level of care, at mm -hmm. least. I have a few notes here just so I don't forget anything. And please just stop me and correct me wherever I'm wrong here. Um, just starting with Paul, Paul Farmer, uh, sort of the <laughs> father of, of redistributed justice. And I always yeah. think of that idea of uh, that moment of him stealing the microscope from Harvard to take to, yeah. to, take to Haiti. Yeah. And so in 1985, I believe, co-founded Partners in Health, which again, it's right there in the name. Uh, and we'll come back to that. But you all are legendary now among the public health community. It started in, in Conj, um, decades of incredible, uh, tireless work uh, there and around the world seeking health justice. Paul 
died in February, I believe, 2022 at uh, yes. such an early age. So I wonder if you could get us up to speed a little bit because Partners in Health has changed and grown so much. So how many folks would you say the organization serves now? So we serve in direct care, meaning that we touch the person about 8 million people a year. I think wow. in terms of who we are hopefully influencing the amount of, of care that they're getting around the world is over 40 million, many, many million because of the, the work we do in changing uh, global policy on treatment for HIV, MDR, TB, and now with oncology, mental health. So I think our direct touching is is 8 million, but the impact is is far greater than that. And that is such a important nuanced point. And I want to dig into that. And I actually have a sort of a semi-personal story about that. That's also, I imagine, a struggle uh, to be able to do yeah. both things at once. You're in, is it 11 countries now, 12 countries, again, directly? We're in 11 countries um, and we have about 19,000 employees around the world. The vast majority, about 12,000 are community health workers. That's incredible. That's that's so amazing. I want to ask now, I mean, gosh, now it's May, which is incredible, 2023. I, I'm not sure exactly how that happened. I know. It's been almost a year and a half for you all since Paul's unexpected death. How is the organization, you folks who knew him best, and all of these other tens of thousands of, of folks who are trying to emulate his work and learn from his work and your work, how is everyone healing? Because you are still a small organization, really. Yeah, you know, I think the personal loss will continue for a lifetime for many of us. He was a part of our, our daily life. You know, his family's here in Miami, so me being able to be close to his wife, Didi, and children is, and brothers has been great. But it's a huge loss. I think he was our North Star. He's the one who continued to, I think, just really uh, put a mirror up to the world and say, like, this is just crazy that there's stupid deaths that happen in the world. And he could, he could say things that other people could never say. And he really believed that it's a big tent. Everybody should be in the tent and would talk to people who you would think would be on the other side of our political agenda. He was a, a once in a lifetime uh, human being or once in a generation. I think, you know, the beauty of Paul, though, is that he didn't ever think that it was one person who could do this. Part of the ethos of PIH is that We've trained people from day one in every place that we are and we work. Even from a small clinic in Kanj in Haiti, part of the, it's delivering care, but also making sure others are learning how to deliver the care. So in all the countries we work, the care is delivered by people from those countries. We don't fly in and drop people from the U.S. there. Our care is delivered by people in those countries. And we, our leaders are all from those countries too. And have all, all knew Paul and, and we're able to, um, I think we're able to see what his, what his impact has been. We have a strong strategic plan that he worked on and, and he imprinted all of us. I think none of us embody Paul solely, but we all have a piece of him in, in us. And it's fascinating, you know, who takes on what role when we're together as a leadership team, because he was also the disruptor. He was also the cheerleader. He was the visionary. And there's not one person who's doing that now. There's a group of us who are doing it, which is also, I think, the beauty of, of Paul. And I think he would be pleased to see that. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And, and I'm, I'm so terribly sorry for, for your loss and, and how abrupt uh, that was for, for his family and you all who are, are obviously a part of his family and so many folks who he helped so directly and intimately, but also increasingly indirectly over, over time, obviously, as yeah. he tried to seemed like he was almost dragged into it and then tried to really show how, how your organization yes. and work in Kanj and, and then in Haiti and specifically could be a model, at least some base elements of it for so many other places to train yes. other people. That whole idea of no one can replicate him specifically, mm -hmm. but at the same time, almost in like a Captain America, not Captain America, um, uh, what was his name? Captain Planet, the creepy guy with the <laughs> kids with the five <laughs> yeah, rings yeah, going yeah. on. You know, you had the, oh God, what was it? Earth and wind and water, whatever it was. Yeah. These pieces came together. And, and it's interesting because I've, I've been reading Paul's work and reading, uh, you know, starting with Mountains Beyond Mountains, like everyone, uh, you know, for so long. But this was a person whose focus and intensity and very direct way of doing things 
whatever it was he was doing, it was so difficult to replicate that he was very much pulled in truly a thousand different directions Mm -hmm. over time. And, you know, I think that applies to any job or role, whether you're a a parent or, or one part of a band or whatever it might be. But I always tell the story, and it's so funny I thought about it because it relates directly to PIH. So my sister, who hopefully doesn't kill me for, for sharing this story yet again, <laughs> actually interned with PIH years ago, 2014. She is the best of my siblings, and I, like by a long shot, it's not even like a close horse race in this regard. Yeah. It's, 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 we, we've come to terms with a long time ago. She went to Tanzania and, and built a school with her bare hands. She also... Uh, has been a teacher for uh, children with uh, learning disabilities and uh, low-income children. And she's also run volunteering for both of the Obama campaigns and struggled always with this sense of, do I want to affect eight kids today for sure and change their lives? No questions asked. Or do I want to work in policy and maybe affect millions of lives in a slightly more vague way? Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult to do both. And it's yeah. really difficult to find an opportunity to do both. And I've always kind of thought about that through my work and everything, but it's so specific to you all. So mm-hmm. I'm curious now with tens of thousands of community health workers and, and, and after Paul, how are you all doing the hands-on work, continuing to do the hands-on work and definitely affecting a few lives directly and simultaneously the policy work? Because as many people yeah. as you all touch now directly, there's millions that could use yeah. the care that you all provide. Such a good question, because I think we also have this conversation of who are we? And with Paul, we would have this conversation. And because the need is endless in terms of direct yeah. care, we could raise billions and we still wouldn't fill that need. And so I think the, the, the decision was made a long time ago to really look at like a theory of change. So you know, you can just provide care, super important, a, a, a very uh, important thing that people do that. Um, and to do that solely will impact that community. But I think the goal of Partners in Health is we create models that then can be replicated because we don't want to be in 100 countries. I can tell you, I get an email every week saying, I'm sure. can you go to this country? Can you go to this country? And that is not who PIH is. Our, our goal is to do the direct care so we know what we're doing, and we'll always do that. That's our credibility. That's our heart. But then also, how are we then training and educating along the way? Because we need that generation behind us to be doing this. Then how are we influencing with evidence? How are we taking starting people in Haiti with on HIV treatments and how we're able to then change the global policy of changing the drug prices for antiretrovirals to to challenging the world to say people have the right to have life-saving HIV treatment. And then how are we influencing that to make great change? And then how are we replicating that? We opened a university five years ago in Rwanda, the University of Global Health Equity. And the goal of that is how are we taking all these lessons, educating a whole new generation of healthcare providers and uh, those who work in, in healthcare delivery in a really different health equity lens and how are we going to change the world? Because we you know, made the decision a long time ago, even though it's a hard decision every day of, do I hire a midwife or do we, are we hiring a, a policy person to be working with the ministry in Sierra Leone? But then by the work we're doing in Sierra Leone with the ministry, they're able to get money from the World Bank they couldn't have gotten. And they're able to roll out the PIH model of care to the rest of the district. So I think it works in this crazy way one only works because of the other part of the puzzle. You know, we would have no credibility in sure. public policy if we didn't do direct care. And, and we can do direct care constantly, but we're not able to really push that systemic change if we're not working at the national and global level. Thank you. I mean, that seems like an easy answer for, for you to be able to, to put forth, but that's decades of struggle decades. to get to that point. Yeah. I imagine, and I imagine it's still... You know, this. I feel like the question I answered most for folks, or the best advice I could give folks at the beginning of COVID, when the, you know, the best answer to what can I do was nothing, is yeah. control what you can control, and, and yeah. you all identifying the fact that we shouldn't raise billions of dollars, we should not be in every country because we would have to sacrifice one of those two tent poles, mm-hmm. and if you sacrifice one, the other one becomes weaker. 
Yes. It's yeah. got to still be a struggle. So you've got the university now uh, and you've obviously you're in, again, you know, 11 countries and training all of these community health workers who train each other sort of formally, structurally. What does that what does a pipeline look for someone look like for someone who joins as a who, who wants to join to train to be a community health worker in one of those countries? Is there a version where they graduate to the broader, uh, you know, community level wide uh, administrative or management to statewide to countrywide? Or are those really two different sort of paths? I think it's a really good question. I think both. I think that, you know, the vast majority of people from those communities who will stay in those communities, and we certainly have people who become supervisors, you know, sure. community health worker supervisor and may or may move up to train to be a nurse's aide or may go to, to go to nursing school, that type of thing. But I think, you know, by far people stay in the community part of their role. There are always opportunities for people to grow. We don't have an endless, limitless supply of jobs. So I, I think it's part of it is also training people so they can get a job other places as well. You know, we think it's a success when people move to a different place and get a job because even when that's people in the U.S., we just found out that one of our long-term people is leaving and immediately your thought is, oh no, like how is it going to impact us? But then yeah. it's like, this is a win because she's going to bring 11 years of great experience to a different place that doesn't really run like Partners in Health and be able to infuse that in a way that is going to just further our our mission, you know, and so we see it as as a win. But I think community health workers do have moved to work in the in the the depot. We actually in Sierra Leone on our construction team to build this paternal center of excellence. We have women construction workers for the first time, and they're like the brave, you know, paving the way. And it's a first in Sierra Leone in this area. It's. Now our major welders are all women because she's gotten her friends and built this cadre. It's, it's this amazing thing that you see that who would have anticipated that that's going to change the life of so many people by little girls seeing that there's women and little boys seeing that there's women doing these jobs. That in itself is such an amazing transformation. I love that, which is like, it depends, basically. Uh, <laughs> you know? we, we are open to it. It obviously, if someone leaves and moves on to something else, that might... Um, you know, we might have to scramble a little bit or think, how do we fill that hole? But in the end, the overall win is hopefully we can spread this a little further. Yeah. My wife and I were very lucky recently, longer story, to, to spend some time at the Mayo Clinic. And we have some wonderful medical folks and health folks in, in our life of a huge variety. But, you know, you go there and you're like, well, this is Star Trek. Like nothing is perfect. Yeah. But yeah. What, what on earth is happening here? And and truly, from the way the buildings are structured to the way the institution and the, yeah. the patient flow is structured, it it's very difficult to walk away and not go, wow, one, how do we do this other places? But if you're at all familiar with at least, you know, the healthcare structure in the United States, at least to go like, oh, well, you really probably can't pivot what we've already got. It's going to require starting some things new because a couple of people leaving from Mayo Clinic or a couple of people leaving from, from Partners in Health, like it's very difficult to really yeah. have an influence on these big, big institutions that are already yes. there that have all these incentives in a thousand different ways. Right. So if I'm someone who, who grows up in the organization and does well and then thinks about, you know what, I think I can actually really go have an impact here. What's the best way for them to do that? How do they go? Because your situation is so unique and hard mm -hmm. to capture. You know, I think we, you know, part of our goal is always that we're seeking opportunities for people to grow professionally, educationally. So you know, we have started these residency programs in Haiti, for example, and that's training the first emergency room residency program where people all trained at, at our university hospital in Mirabalay. And that's an opportunity for people to become a specialist that they didn't have in Haiti. Training nurses to become nurse anesthetists, like another pathway for people to learn. Some people get, you know, get an opportunity to, to travel and study at a university in, in Norway or in the U.S. for, you know, master's programs. And then they come back and they're, they're able to kind of share their information. I think why, why we have started the university, though, is, is we know that those opportunities are not, everybody doesn't have access to a Fulbright scholarship, for example. And there's so many amazing people. So how are we also giving our amazing doctors and nurses who work in Lesotho 
to be part of this university in Rwanda and bring their lessons learned. Now there's going to be students from Lesotho who go to study in Rwanda for the first time to be exposed to a really, really, really different world. I think the goal is that we're trying to always cross-pollinate everybody mm -hmm. and each other and and see where there's partnerships and partners in health means we partner with everybody, with other great organizations, partners with ministries of health around the world. And so part of it is too, is are there opportunities within the government for people or do we need to provide our government colleagues an opportunity to go to a conference and learn and train? So I think it's this big kind of ecosystem that we're trying to continue to build. And it varies greatly in, in where we can get visas for people we were all supposed to just meet in Peru and found out that we couldn't get visas for some of our executive directors who were based in Africa for racist reasons, basically. Yeah. It's also confronting and battling those structural violence that is embedded in our culture and our society, too, and trying to see what can we do to change that and address that. And where do we have to say we have to move the meeting because we're not going to yeah. have it in Peru without half our people. And that's always the hard one, right, is going yeah. back. So my wife is the greatest human alive and a hardest worker and talented and successful and all these wonderful things. And she's a screenwriter and producer who are on strike as of eight hours ago. Yes, I saw that. heard that. Ugh, Hollywood. It's a, it's yeah. a nightmare. But part of the reason people work with her so much is because she's so good at what she does. She works so hard. Second part is she's the most wonderful human. But the third part is that part you just talked about, which is going like, hey, guys, we have to move the meeting where she can take her writing personally and care about the words on the page and care about how an actor's feelings are or this budget or this. But the end goal is always, we're trying to make a movie. And in the end, same thing, you know, this is why I come back to uh, Mariano Mazzucato's book, uh, The Mission-Based Economy, about these clear measurable outcomes. Like if the goal is to put someone on the moon, yeah. everything you do up to that point has to answer to that all your processes and your teams. And if the goal is like, we have to have this meeting mm -hmm. or we have to get this movie made, some things are going to be sacrificed along the way. And that doesn't make it yes. better or worse, but it has to be measured against like, can we have this meeting, which I'm sure there's some intended outcome out of that or process mm -hmm. out of that. So I want to talk about that because as much as we've talked about sort of pipelines, and I want to talk a little bit about how you actually recruit folks to be community health workers in these countries or in the US, your path, you went from, some doing the on the ground work to running an organization like this. And, and just for a moment, again, from my notes, and please correct me, <laughs> everywhere I'm wrong, I'm used to it, it's my day, I have children. <laughs> chief of clinical operations and chief nursing officer at PIH, you oversaw the nursing and the supply chain and everything. Chief of Ebola response for PIH in 2014, 2016. Co-founder of a small NGO before that, that was in South Africa and Boston. Um, you worked on HIV and AIDS. How? important do you feel like now, especially now that Paul has left us and everyone's trying to both fill his shoes, but in a different way, mm -hmm. how important is it for someone to run an organization like yours to have so much on the ground experience? Yeah. And where do you feel like a few years in that it's an obstacle in some way? I mean, I think I was an un, uncommon or, or unexpected choice for this role because I'm not a Harvard trained physician. I, you know, am somebody who was definitely from the ground up working at PIH for about 10 years before I became CEO and didn't want the job. I, I was asked to interview with the, the search firm because they were, they were trying to see, you know, get ideas. And at the end of this kind of interview of just, you know, getting ideas, the woman said, I think you should put your hat in the ring. And I thought, there's no way in hell they're going to choose yeah. a nurse. You know what I mean? From sure. But I thought this is a chance to get my ideas on the table that are not just my ideas. They're ideas of having worked in every country we, we are working, spending long nights, you know, up late, tra long travels where you really get to know people and these amazing people around the world. So these weren't my ideas as much as the synergy of all of them together. So I just was super painfully honest. And, and my word of advice always, if you don't want something, then you're always at your best because you're, you're, you're going to be authentically yourself. So I was really authentically saying, I think this is where we need to change, this is what we need to do. And I think because I had worked in, in all of the country sites or most of them and knew people, I could speak authentically to really where I think we need to be pushing decision-making to those in closer proximity, where you know I thought that we could shift the way that we our leadership structure was, which is very, was US focused 
and was able to, I think, speak honestly about how that was, I think that was important. And then had built up political capital through the years so that when I did take over the role four years ago, I made some pretty drastic changes, but had some political capital because people hopefully knew that I was not somebody from the outside. I had, they, they trusted that I, I, I was kept the patient at the center um, and I, so I think that's been, that allowed me, I think, to really do things a little differently than had I come in from the outside. I do think though, I miss the, the interaction with patients. I even miss the interaction, even with, with the frontline staff in a way that I fly in and fly out, which I always used to hate when people did that. And now sure. I'm that person who flies in mm -hmm. and flies out, which mm -hmm. is like my own issue. That was a personal loss of wow, and, and how do I make sure I don't lose what I think makes me a good leader the further I get away from it? And I think all leaders are, struggle with that. I think about that probably more so than I should of worrying about that because I do think it's, you know, so many errors are made in, in life and in organizations when there's people who don't have good proximity to what you're trying to do, make sure. all the decisions. So that's sure. why I restructured the leadership team, did all this to put systems in place to help counteract that. But there's a personal loss of feeling like I'm not, I don't have the same connection with people in the same way of, of patience. Could you possibly make bandwidth, make time to do that in some way? Is there some, I think of Google for what it's worth now, you know, had forever their sort of whatever, 5% time or 10% time for people to work on side projects. And we've talked a little bit here about this idea of like helping organizations, other organizations, not like a PIH, yeah. you know, empower their workers to use 20% of their time for something that is future positive in some way, whether it's related or not. Is there room for you to to spend some time with with patients at all? Like, does that exist? Do you feel like it would, I don't want to say check that box, but do you feel like it would fulfill what you feel like you're missing? You know, I think I was, when I first started at PIH, I did, I did keep my practice at Mass General and was able to kind of combine worlds. And then when Ebola happened and I was in West Africa most of the time, and when I wasn't in West Africa, I couldn't get into a hospital here if I wanted to because of the Ebola scare. So that yeah. kind of had to abruptly stop me taking care of patients. And now that I'm the further away from it, I'm probably not the best one to do it anymore because I'm not up to date on the same HIV medications in the same way. I think when sure. I do go do visits or, you know, visit sites, I try to spend some time in the hospital just to, you know, connect with the staff and talk to patients. I feel like there's at this point with what my role is that that would be self-serving for me, but not necessarily benefit the whole I try to get snippets of it, but I think it is, it's hard to incorporate that. But I, I do think in a lot of instances, I'd hope more and more companies do that. And I think our, most of our clinicians who are US based all have their clinical practice that they've kept, even though it takes a lot of maneuvering to get time to be doing the big chunks of time. But I think that's what makes them still effective. So I try to in, infuse it in others. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year, and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions 
alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. My children now are, um, I mean, they think they're 20, but they're 10 and eight and seven or whatever. They're all convinced they could, you know, live in an apartment and have a job by themselves. Yeah. It's, it's this thing, right? Where you, like you talked about the fly in and fly out. Now you're that person and how I, you know, once a, I, I try my best to, to, to be a, a, a father that's there to be a father that is, um, I'm very privileged to be able to be there as much as I want to be. Um, mm -hmm. and that they're healthy in these things. But, uh, you know, those moments where you can, I'm sure you had this with your kid who seems to be an actual adult now, those moments where you find yourself saying to some small child, like, because I said so. And then you're like, oh my God, like, how am I, oh, yeah. now I'm that person. I, I, I everything know. I did so was to true. not be this, you know? So true. How do you wrestle with that? Do you feel like those are some of those decisions you made, those radical decisions and new systems you put in place to make sure that like, it's okay for me to be the fly in, fly out because yeah. we're actually more in touch in better places. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, by dismantling the executive leadership team in Boston, day 10 or something, and creating a leadership council. So our 11 site leaders are our leadership team. That's who is, is helping making the strategic decisions about budget, about growth. And it's hard because they also are running their own countries, sure. but I think it's been built in the, the system and the structure so that it's not a sole decision maker. And I think yeah. that's where, as I've gotten older, I appreciate systems and structures more in a way than I did before when I was kind of an anti-structure person, because sure. that is building in the systems that when I'm gone, that exists. Somebody could come in and change it, but hopefully they couldn't by the time we've morphed this to really be an organization that that has leadership that is not just in the U.S., but the person who takes my job someday shouldn't be sitting in the U.S. We're a global organization, and I, I'm hoping that we're infusing enough of that, of those systems in place so that we're, we've changed the, the kind of the way that PIH operates. Again, part of my job, and I'm like a dumb liberal arts major, to be very clear, like generalist is a, is a gentle use of the term. Like yeah. flashcards were never my thing. You know, I learned I can ask good good questions. That's it. There is no you didn't want this guy's a doctor or a scientist or any of those things. But those constraints, as we'll call them, uh, were very illustrative to me once I threw my ego aside, uh, which is it makes you ask this question of, OK, what well, what can I do? And I always love that formulation, those four words, because it's the one the one we hear the most and we base all of our work on whatever it is, whether it's COVID or health or climate. Because you can say it so many different days. You can say, what can I do? You can say, what can I do? You can say, what can I do? Yeah. And those are all actually really different questions. Yeah. And there's been a thousand different systems. What do the kids call them on Twitter these days? Constructs. I don't know. To, to frame that. And the best one is usually like, what are you into? What are you good at? And the intersection of those two things, I can point mm -hmm. you to 70 different measurable, reputable places like PAH where you could be put to use, whether in a donation role, volunteer role, full-time role, whatever it might be, a lateral move, it, you know, it's, it's very easy to answer that. And for myself, you know, I started when um, one of my, my dear cousins got cancer and I didn't know this is 15 years ago. And I was like, well, what can I do? What can I do? I was like, oh, I, mm -hmm. I can't literally directly help her because I'm a moron, but I was a college athlete. So, which this is a long time ago, I can sweat. And so I found team and training, which is the fundraising arm and the human lymphoma society. And they've been around for forever. Um, and I was like, this is amazing. I can do this. I can give the money to the smart people who know what to do with mm -hmm. it. And that's fantastic. The point is we have to throw the kitchen sink at so many of the things yeah. we're doing these days, which is a problem and an opportunity. And it's wonderful. It's proven we did it with smoking from the courts to marketing to regulations, whatever it might be. We have done it in some ways with COVID and we're working on it with climate and clean energy and food. How do you 
talk to young folks who are trying to get into public health, whether you're directing them towards PIH or not. And, mm-hmm. and we can talk specifically about how you can recruit or entertain, you know, new classes of community health workers in these countries. But sort of how do you talk to those folks about how they can get into this sort of thing, knowing what you knew about really the people who need help mm-hmm. the most and aren't getting it? So much of of this is a, is a, a lived philosophy in a, in a way. And I was just talking to a, a, a group of, of nursing students the other day who all, you know, from the U.S. who wanted to like, what I want to do global health. And I always say like, global health is like, in Miami, it's in Boston, it's in New York. It's to me, it's the lens in which we do we care, which is focused on equity, and is basically mm-hmm. saying, if you're living in under a bridge in Miami, you deserve the same treatment for your breast cancer than if you live, you know, at the Fountain Blue kind of thing. Sure. And so that getting involved with um, social justice issues in your own backyard is 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 literally the PIH's mission, even if it has nothing to do with PIH, because it really is. This has to take a, a, a transformational shift of our of our society, and it's really seeing not in a charity way, but more like this is a moral responsibility that we care for each other. You can do that if you're, a, you know, an athlete and you can raise money this way. If you're a, a scientist and can do something, if you're a travel agent and can help get good flights, like there's the way that you can contribute. Paul used to talk about something called expert mercy and expert mercy was what, you know, we need expertise in so many different ways and it and it's what you bring to it from what your gifts are or your skills are. So if I'm a teacher, expert mercy is I'm making sure that kid in the classroom who's from Haiti is proud of where they come from. Because so when we talk about mm-hmm. geography, we talk about how Haiti is an amazing place, not just sure. the horrible things you hear in the news. Or like as sure. a nurse, it's spending time with somebody. So I think it's it truly is this getting engaged with these justice issues, whether it's about you know incarceration or whatever, because it is all about seeing humans as equal and deserving of, of care and dignity. So I think that is where there's so many in every place we live, there's so many places where people need help. And I think seeking out organizations where you work and actually being that help and whether it's driving meals or doing this or doing that and being okay with that and leaving your ego at the door to do that, I think is a big piece of it. I think obviously raising money for organizations like PIH is critical. We can't do what we do if if we don't have the resources to do that. We also do a lot with advocacy and I think this is whether PIH is your thing and our big issue is global health funding and or it's you know gun control or whatever, really taking the responsibility to not just turn off the news when we all want to do that, but to get actively engaged, even if it's hard, I think is an important thing. The Paul Farmer Memorial Resolution was was launched, was it was put on the congressional floor last year, and it really is trying to change the way global funding happens. You know, right now the US gives about 12 billion a year. We think the US should be giving about 125 billion a year. And it's still a minute amount of money compared to what we oh spend. That's nothing compared to the whole budget. It's nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. And so advocating and getting learning about that process to call your congressman or doing that, like, seems like it's not a lot, but it's when those little pieces all come together, it is a lot. So I, I think all those things are, are, are ways that people can remain engaged and also ways that we can hopefully get people to also look beyond your own backyard and pay attention to what's happening in Haiti now. Pay attention to what's happening in other parts of the world. That I think opens your mind up, open your kids' minds up. And and that I really think is gonna take this major effort to change our society. And I think those are ways that that can happen. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. One of my biggest takeaways from from all of Paul's work and in, in his published work and work published about him over the years and all of your work in doing this model and then trying to prove this model in other places, both the work, but also what you've gathered from the work, you know, the TB treatments and things like that, is this idea of, and I feel like we can apply this to so many different problems, which means it's probably too simple, but that's the point is it's this idea of it doesn't have to be this way in the sense that Yes. Our basic necessities are very, are, are very, there's very few of them and they're shared among all of us. But at the same time, these systems we've built to 
either enable access or to enable qualified access or to deny access in some way yeah. or to make expensive more access. We've made them so much more complicated over time for a, a long litany of perversions and, yeah. and reasons. But I always come back to this idea of when people get frustrated with voting or, or community yeah. health or, or air pollution in their neighborhood, whatever it is, which is community health, again, is this idea of like, it doesn't have to be this way. It's just a yeah. series of decisions that people made over yes. time. But also, why is it this way? And this is where I use, again, something I've taken from my children, which is this just relentless barrage of why, why, Wise. why, to get to the bottom of this problem. Because then we can start from the bottom and go, these are the immovable pieces of the things everybody need, which I believe you said in your statement about Paul, and, and he's always talked about, again, everyone having equal opportunity, this idea of the power of accompaniment. Yes. How do you build that into the culture so that it is transferable among all these different countries? Because especially in the U.S., someplace that's the richest country in the history of the world, yeah. you know, per capita spread it around. We've really lost that in a lot of ways because most 100%. of these medical institutions do not operate in that way, no matter how much money you've got. Again, that was sort of this big thing, but it's just been floating around and floating around because I, I try to think about like if the base element is we, we don't have community health because we're not spending enough time with one another. We don't know each yeah. other well enough. If that is, and those are the base elements we need, how do you build that and institutionalize that mm -hmm. and then hire people to do that? Yeah, you know, I think COVID was eye-opening. I think many of us knew that the U.S. health system was really inept in a lot of ways. And I think mm -hmm. COVID illuminated that. We build phenomenal hospitals. If you have, you need the highest tech gene therapy, like you, this is the place to be. If you're a, a, a young, struggling mother who lives in a, a community that's, you know, one, one zip code or two T-stops away, um, that the, our health system doesn't serve you at all because our, all of our care, our reimbursement systems are all based in hospitals. And that's mm -hmm. the most expensive care with the most expensive providers. Like it's, we're so skewed. So when COVID happened and all of a sudden it was like, wow, we don't have basic public health departments because they've been defunded for decades, right? And insurance companies don't pay for that. And we see that healthcare is a commodity, not a right in this country. That's where it's been built. So it was eye-opening for people to say, why the hell is PIH being involved in the U.S.? Like, what can you, who works in Haiti and Sierra Leone, help us in Chicago, right? And I think it's, it was a, an interesting moment to see that it really showed that we had a lot of value add because our whole ethos is grounded in the community. We have 300 hospitals around the world. We do hospitals too, but our care is, is grounded in the community. And we know that you need trusted messengers. So when it came to starting vaccine efforts in, um, in Chicago, for example, and P there was not uptake in certain communities, we knew why, because it's the same thing that happens around the world. We don't have people in the community. So we work to build trusted messengers and ambassadors around vaccines. None of it's rocket science. Like part of it is, do you, are you providing food for people who you're asking to quarantine? Like stuff that we mm -hmm. do innately as part of the PIH model was kind of earth shaking for the US healthcare system, which is so surprising. So we've stayed in seven communities in the US and some of those communities are building community health workers into their systems. And I think, you know, our goal is going slowly, seeing where we can be of added value we're not providing direct healthcare here like we do around the world, but we're working with different entities, systems, health departments to try to look at the community health worker model. And it's happening in some places in the U.S. really successfully. How are we making sure that becomes part of the care that happens and how are we pushing care into the community? And there's such a huge need. And it's much cheaper to do it that way and high quality to do it that way. And it's you know, preventative based. And it's, yeah. it's all of these things because, you know, I always came back to this idea. And again, you thought about during COVID when the, the, the most instructive thing you could tell people is like, stay home, don't, yeah. don't do anything. Don't do anything. You lose yeah. that power of accompaniment. You yes. lose because we're social beings, you know, whatever it may be, this connectedness and this trust. Because yeah. I imagine coming back to working in a place like the US. And I know, again, like you have a bunch of folks who, who still share practices back and forth. And you know, I know Paul did the same thing, but there's a fine line between saying, hey, these practices, these base practices we have proven in 11 different countries and we use in our in our teaching, in our hospitals and, and in our community health clinics, 
but then going to a new place, because like you said, it's the messenger is just as important as yeah. the message. Going to them and saying, now, let me ask some questions about how this might work in your specific culture, whether that's Chicago or, or Uganda. Mm -hmm. And one of my earliest conversations, please don't listen to it because Lord knows I was terrible at it at the time, was with this incredible nurse, Karen Huster. And she talked She talked about her experience in the Congo with Ebola and how you know important it was to, for the messengers because so much of the folks who were not interested in care were because of religious beliefs or whatever it yeah. might have been. Yeah. And it's not super helpful from some white guy from the UN or wherever to fly in yeah. and be like, you need this vaccine. Totally. So how do you bridge that gap? How do you constantly go to new places and say, look, this works, but also like, let me have some modesty about this because I don't know yeah. your situation as well. Yeah. And I, you know, we only go, we're invited. You know, I think part of it is, you know, because we know that there, ha there has to be, it has to be catered to where we are. And that's why the U.S., I think, is a great example of we were at 19 different places during COVID. What was happening in each 19 place looked totally different because it depended on what was needed. So I think we always come in with humility to say we don't have all the answers. We have no we don't. I've never delivered care in Chicago. I can't tell you what it's like, but this is some things that have worked in other places. And how could this work here? Or what do you need? When we first started working in Newark, for example, they needed basic, basic things like money for phone cards for the, for the mm -hmm. initial people to doing outreach. Or we pay for electricity in some places and other places of the world. Like we don't say we're healthcare providers, we're going to do this. We say, what do you need to take care of your people and your community? And then accompany them and, and do what they know the answers are, but often don't have the tools to do it whether it's analysis, it's monitoring the valuation, it's statistics, whatever, it's creating community health workers in Immokalee, Florida, but it's always based on, on champions on the ground who have mm -hmm. the same kind of ethos of people are people and we need to treat them the same. And like finds like, you know what I mean? Which is the beautiful part. And then it's saying not this is the pH model because the pH model looks different in every place we work. There's some core components of it and and it's more like we are pragmatic solidarity. So we'll we'll stand in solidarity with you, not just hold a sign, but like if you want to create a vaccine ambassador, like this is what we think we can do, whether mm -hmm. it's money, expertise or whatever, but you know better than we do. So we're here to, to be with you and accompany you and not lead you. And I think that's why we continue to iterate what happens in Chicago is influencing now what we do in Liberia. No one place has all the answers. It seems like that if anything is most transferable, and again, going all the way back to, it's right there in the name, Partners in Health, this power of accompaniment. Yeah. It does seem to be the, it doesn't have to be the way, this way. Why is it this way? Come down to like, what is the one thing that is the most effective, no matter where you are, irregardless of who is doing the accompaniment, yeah. right? Who, who can be trusted because of the institutions that are already here? It is this idea, right? That that if everyone's going to have equal access, that's got to come from the people around them, right? And and that power of Definitely. accompaniment, like you said, but that can also mean organization to organization, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we work with organizations all around, like we're not experts in so many things. During COVID, we were asked to help build oxygen plants. Well, we're not going to build an oxygen plant, but we partner yeah. with Build Health International, who who does our amazing oxygen plants. And so mm -hmm. together, you know, now we're working in all the places together. So I think it is acknowledging what we're good at, but acknowledging what we're not good at, but also saying what's good when you work in the Miami is not good. It may look really different. It's not the same formula that's going to work in Sierra Leone or Haiti. The basic premise is, though, it may look different, but the, the end of the day, everybody deserves a high quality of health care. So just because you live in Haiti doesn't mean that you should get second-rate care, right? It's it's a long road. We're really trying, but basically it's not less than, you know, when we're really saying we're, that's why we're still operating all of our hospitals, even now in Haiti, all of our residency programs are still open and running because there's still an entire community to take care of. And that doesn't come from me. That comes from 5,000 Haitians that work for Zami Lasante or PIH in Haiti because of all of our... Mm -hmm all of our staff are people from those communities. Like that's the beauty of it because they're they're building capacity for their mother and for themselves and their kids. Like it's a game changer in that way. Thank you for sharing that. That's that, It's so instructive and illustrative of, again, there's no one best path 
forward, but yeah. there is a bedrock here that has been proven in so many different places. And the more places it is proven and, and to be so fundamental and useful and helpful and, and reassuring to folks, it seems like the more places we can adapt it to. I have some questions I ask everyone. And b- yeah. before I get to those, I do want to talk for a moment about disaster relief a little bit, because mm-hmm. you, I believe you started at PIH and in Haiti, is it shortly after the earthquake, right around the earthquake? Wasn't that right when the hospital was opening or something like that? Shortly after, you know, the hospital opened in 2013, but the, uh, the okay. major earthquake was 2010. But I started in September of 2010, so after the initial okay. response, but still the right. very, a lot of the, the disaster stuff was still operating. And since then, obviously, there have been hurricanes, there's all kinds of things, and obviously yes. all these places around the world are there's been natural disasters, as we call them forever, but now we yeah. know that in a lot of places, they already are increasing in volatility yeah. and frequency. That is something we need to just all talk more about in the yeah. you know, sense of like, yeah. how do we talk about climate change? We talk about it more. That's one of the best yeah. things we can do. Yeah. Yes, we need to mitigate as much as we can, but adaptation yeah. means trying to do a better job of, of really planning and building infrastructure for this. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you all have learned from mm-hmm. that sense that might be applicable as we learn to really try to take these things on in the meantime, especially for so many of these frontline communities who've suffered these forever, who already don't have yeah. care or don't have insurance or whatever, home insurance or health insurance. What have you learned that might be transferable for how we best operate going forward? Yeah, you know, I think when there's disasters, a lot of money appears and that's great. Like you need money when disasters appear. But if you really yeah. look at how much money is spent and what gets left behind, disaster relief is the worst way to spend money, right? Because it's mm. it's not building systems. So we firmly believe that disaster resilience, pandemic preparedness, whatever you want to call it, is best done by having a strong health system. You know, when we look at Ebola, for example, Ebola was in the U.S., did not take off because we have a health system, right? It was able to stop it. It got stopped in Nigeria very, very quickly. It didn't get stopped in West Africa because there was not a functioning basic health system. So we firmly believe that, you know, instead of just throwing money at emergency disaster, use that money to actually make these health systems stronger. That is how we're going to be so much more effective at at battling climate climate issues, pandemics, et cetera. It's in, and it's so much as how funding is allocated. You know, there's a whole pot of money for disasters, tiny, tiny bit of money for health system strengthening. I think what we're saying is it's all the same thing. And in the U.S., a lot of funding now is under global security, right? It's not mm-hmm. under healthcare. There's a lot of reasons that we could go into around that, good or bad. But I think what we're saying is the best global health security is community health workers, right? Who they're sure. the first ones that are going to pick up what's happening around the world much more so than some extensive drones and surveillance systems. Like surveillance systems are people, but you can't just plop them in when there's an Ebola outbreak. Like there has to be that you have people who are trusted in the community. So when people are sick, they know. And it's much cheaper, so much more effective. So how do we shift away from this disaster response to building effective health systems? Yeah, I mean, again, it seems so odd. I know. So frustratingly obvious, you know. It is. I've talked to the folks who are building up called Biobot Analytics, so building up wastewater monitoring in the U.S. Uh, out of Boston, and it just seems so easy. Yeah. It is so cheap. So cheap. It just helps. It gives you like a two-week lead time for at least uh, COVID, which is crazy. Crazy. Somebody told me two years ago, and now they're like, look, we can also do norovirus. Let me tell you what your school doesn't want to deal with, you yeah. know, norovirus. Yeah. Like, can we have a heads up? So I think about those things, and it's, it is frustrating because, you know, prevention can go such a long way in in that respect and building mm-hmm. up these more resilient systems. And I think about what Ed Yong wrote so long ago when COVID first kicked mm-hmm. off. We had two different metaphors and obviously his is a hundred times better, which is, you know, it was, it was the, I believe it was like the flood that exposed all the cracks that were already in the yeah. sidewalk. Yeah. You know? And mine was like, look, here's the pop quiz. Let's test all of your societal and economical choices to date and let's see how you did. And yeah. the answer was like, not great. Not great. Again, it comes back to like, control what you can control yeah. and do what you are supposed to do and what you are best suited to do. Yeah. And we can start to mitigate for climate and we can mitigate for pandemics and public health and all these things, but we can also level the playing field. Yes. You know, we can yeah. have cleaner indoor air, we can have cleaner outdoor air, we can have cleaner water, more water, all these things, because those things will happen, but they don't need to be so bad mm-hmm. and they don't need to happen so often to so many people, especially mm-hmm. the people who keep suffering them the most. most yeah. And yet, like you said, disaster relief 
so important is the sexiest thing. Yeah. Part of it is, I think, trying to acknowledge that people feel like they're having impact. You know, they see something and then they're like, I'm giving $5 and I can see what it's going for. You know, it's going to buy water or do whatever. And I, and I think what we need to do is also just shift that there's suffering that happens all the time. Suffering is, is horrific. And I think we see it in the media. We bear witness to it in the media when there's an emergency. We don't in the same way. And, and, you know, we don't do exploitive type of media at all. We're, we're always very respectful and about that, but we're suffering every day, everywhere. So I think part of it is how do we again shift this mindset of, you know, there's a moral imperative for a woman who has breast cancer in Malawi. She should get the same care my sister would get. If you acknowledge that and you absorb that as a human, then you could say, well, to do that, then there, she needs to be, have a hospital to go to and she needs a lab and she needs chemotherapy. She needs a nurse. So like we can start doing that. And but ra- rather than, I think, just throwing hands up in the air and also saying, oh, there's too much to do, because there's also a pessimism that gets, you know, the world is horrific and we can't fix what's happening. And, you know, I think we always say that it's only the privileged who can afford to not be optimistic, right? And we, don't, we can't make that choice for somebody else. And I can't give up on behalf of somebody else. We're in a place of privilege and we can't do that. And I think it's that's where it's not turning away, but saying we can do something about it. Like we really can. And that's where we're, we're trying to do it in, in what we touch, but then also beyond. But it really is a lot of it is, I think, this, this acknowledgement of each other as human beings. And we are a brother and sister's keeper, regardless of you'd never see that person. And it's, again, it's, it's just so, it's this idea, and it can seem too optimistic of this idea of like problems or opportunities, but... There is suffering every day, and so I look to organizations like yours that are doing the, the, the side of the, the, the mitigation of, of, of public health to look and say, yes, but there's, mo- there's people, yeah. and there's organizations and institutions and models that are working to alleviate that. Again, yeah. if you, it doesn't take much to scroll our world and yeah. data to see how much better it's gotten. Exactly, Great. exactly. That was all low-hanging fruit. Let's keep doing those yes. things, and then we'll keep having those those issues. We can't control if some hurricane's going to come, much less an earthquake, but we can just keep making the baseline better. And so, again, that is what is so appealing to me about your organization um, is, is the work you do to say, like, no, this works, and it works yeah. for the people who've never had any sort of support before. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. I know your time is obviously, uh, and this is like the fifth time we've tried to do this. So I'm not going to abuse it anymore. <laughs> but we longer. made it. But we made it though. We made it. We're, well, we're yes. not done. Hold, hold yeah, on. Yeah, hold yeah. on. We're going to get out of here. When, when I see those files in my folder, we're out of here. Last couple questions I ask everyone, if you don't mind, and then I'll, I'll let you run away. Is that okay? Totally. Okay. When was the first time in your life? Could have been probably not yesterday, considering our conversation in your history, or when you uh, were a small child, when you felt like you had the power of change, the power to move the needle, to do something meaningful. When you kind of took a step back and were like, oh shit, that's interesting, I did something. When was that for you? Because we often find that that's the the catalyst, even if folks Mm. didn't realize it in the moment, to to doing what they do. You know, I think I grew up in a family that was very focused on justice and, you know, the the no nukes sign and the like passing or save the seals like we were always into things like that and but i grew up in rural maine right which was like in the middle of nowhere and so we were a bit of an oddity anyway this family that had moved from rhode island but where it was boycotting a store that had i don't even know what they did they did something and the store ended up closing right it which Mm -hmm. was a good thing and I remember mm-hmm. thinking, wow, like that was because people stood outside and said, don't go here because they treat people poorly. But I think that's like a, an example of seeing the power of people doing it. I think as a, as a person, I became a nurse because I wanted to help people. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be a nurse, but saw that, that I could get skills and really make someone's life a little easier that day kind of thing, whether that was from a skill that I had so I, I think that was also where that is fundamentally what I'm trying to do now on a really different scale than than what I did then. But still, I think the core of, of why I'm doing it. And, and I think that was patterned from my parents and my siblings who all kind of were in some type of human services. That was just kind of who we are and, and mm-hmm. was expected, but in a good way. I love that. I'm just going to play that for my children. Who is someone in your life who has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Getting specific here. 
So there's a, a nurse leader in Haiti, her name is Mark Shilmis, who's this powerhouse of a woman who lured away 10 years ago to, to join PIH. And now she's running our Haiti project. And Haiti's tough, like so much is happening, but she is, and we, we, we talk on WhatsApp every day. And I just saw her in, in Boston last Friday. And she's somebody who even in the midst of pure hell, you know, she can just see the goodness in it and see and, and just infuse that, even if this is really tough, you know what, we're gonna get to the other side of this. And she's somebody who, it should be the other way around. You know, I should be the one who's rallying her, but I right. find that she's the one who is just su such a, an amazing leader that is keeping this entire family of 5,000 people in Haiti that we work with going during a really, really rough time. And when I need inspiration, I just check in with her and she inspires me. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. She sounds uh, incredible. I Extraordinary. Done this variety of advising and philanthropic, and I always participate in the sweating side whenever I can. And one of the things I've loved to do is cycle for survival with uh, uh, for rare cancers. It's um, um, oh gosh, I'm totally blanking right now. But with the uh, Dana Farber. Oh yeah. It's great. It's a bunch of people on on basically like Peloton bikes at a gym, and and it's playing music, and you watch the ticket yeah. go up for how much money you raise. And, you know, you feel like you're in good shape and you're contributing and like it's inspirational and maybe someone else will see it happening inspirational. And then they inevitably roll up both researcher and doctor to talk about how they're actually using the money you're raising, but also a current patient or a survivor mm -hmm. who has overcome this and is also biking and definitely like biking farther than I am and doing yeah, all these things. Yeah. And I'm always just like, wow. Jesus, like, I, mean, I think know it's incredible. Um, yeah. And anyways, that's that's my very low key version of that. Last one, Sheila, in all of your free time, what is a book you have read the past year or so that has either changed your mind in some way or opened your mind to maybe a different perspective or idea um, that you hadn't considered before? And we have a whole list of these things that we throw up and people love to investigate them. So the past year, this is probably not, not what you're looking for, but I have love poetry. Poetry is what kind of awesome. feeds me. So I it wasn't new to me, but I hadn't hadn't um, you know delved into Mary Oliver for many years. Um, she was my mm -hmm. mother's favorite poet, and when my mother died, I kind of just put it away, kind of thing. And sure. the past year, and even I read, have thought and and passed around a bunch of her poems in in the past uh, year or so because it has offered me comfort. I spoke at Paul's funeral, and I quoted the Maya Angelou, "When Great Trees Fall." Um, that that poem, and so I think it's, it gives me the words that I, I don't always have as a person to to talk about the emotion I'm feeling or to to kind of be that mirror. So I, I over the past year, have started to just read a, a tremendous amount of poetry and pass it on. I'm sure people are sick of it, but pass it on because it it I think it's such a amazing gift. And so that is what the books I read now, other than kind of, you know, workbooks. Ugh, workbooks. All I read is workbooks. I mean, I love it, but oh my gosh. I, but but yeah. I think, I don't think people are sick of it. Again, uh, I know you haven't like shoved poetry at me yet, yet, but at the same time, it is such a break from workbooks and these things, but yeah. at the same time can be such an end around to influencing how you put those workbooks to use, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah. If I can recommend one new book for you. Yes. Uh, there's a, a gentleman, a writer named Clint Smith. He wrote an incredible book a couple of years ago called How the Word is Passed. But yeah. he has a new book of poetry about being a black man in America and being a parent. And it's called Above Ground. It came out oh, two great. weeks ago, something like that. It is beautiful and Check wonderful. It out. And you'll you'll blow through it um, and, and fold all the pages over. And it's great. Yeah. And he's an incredible. He writes for The Atlantic sometimes. I mean, it's just like... I love recommendations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, this has been amazing. Where can the people follow you or support PIH? What's what's the best way to do so directly? Yeah. Give it to me. So our website is www.pih.org. And okay. on there is PIH Engage, our chapters in high schools and colleges and, and communities of how to get engaged with our advocacy efforts around the, mm -hmm. around the country and um, you know, how to talk to congressmen, how to make a call, how to even write a letter. Like it's, it's, it has a low threshold for a kind of engagement. And also on the website, it talks about our, our, our work. Um, obviously, if, you know, people have a skill, if they're, if you're somebody who is a, 
a critical care nurse who can come for three months, you know, to a place, another place in the world. We're always looking for certain skills of like high tech care that, and not a week at a time, we only take people months at a time. I think sure. that's always, always of interest to us. And then I think just learning about our work and talking about PIH and donating if you're able, um, you know, any amount is super helpful is also the way that we kind of keep it going. And I think really just opening your eyes and bearing witness to what's happening ar around us and, and really making the push for a moral imperative to, to work with each other is, is a win for us, even if it's not directly impacting us. Well, I love that. It seems horribly cliche at this point, but it's so instructive because it's so simple and it speaks to me so much about your work, but I always come back to the find your helpers idea, right? Yeah, find the helpers. So true. And, and that's, 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 that's you all. And, and it's incredible. There, there is suffering every day, but uh, you all have proven this over and over and over again. And it's amazing. So thank you for your work. Uh, thank you for recording with me five times at this point. Great. Thank you so much. I'll check out the book. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, we will uh, talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Sheila. Yes. All right. Take care. Important Not Important is hosted by me, Quinn Emmett. It is produced, uh, thankfully, by Willow Beck. Uh, it is edited by Anthony Luciani, and the music is by Tim Blaine. Uh, you can read our critically acclaimed newsletter, get up to speed on upcoming uh, podcasts and uh, ones you've already heard, whatever, at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, we've also got t-shirts and hoodies and all kinds of things to carry coffee in at our store there. I'm on Twitter and most other places at Quinn Emmett or at Important Not Imp or LinkedIn or what have you. Um, and of course, you can always send us guest ideas, feedback, responses, comments, whatever you've got, questions uh, to us an email, uh, which doesn't usually break, at questions at importantnotimportant.com. That's it. That's it for this week. Uh, have a great weekend. Enjoy yourselves. Go outside. Uh, and thank you, as always, for giving a shit.